welcome to episode 92 of The Music Room. This is all about culturally responsive teaching in The Music Room, and I'm interviewing Ashley Cuthbertson. Before I bring Ashley on the show, I would love to tell you a little bit about her. Ashley Cuthbertson, she, her, is the founder and principal consultant of A. Cuthbertson Consulting, LLC, an educational consulting firm that partners with schools, school districts, and organizations to help music educators build and maintain high-quality music programs that attract, engage, and retain music students by centering equitable and culturally responsive pedagogical practices in their music curriculum and instruction. A nationally board-certified teacher, Ashley holds a master's in education as well as certifications in the Kodai Approach and Arts Integration. Ashley has over 12 years of experience in education as a general music and choral educator, a band educator, a K-12 musicianship instructor, a private lessons instructor, lead teacher, new teacher coach, adjunct professor, curriculum writer, and consultant. A passionate advocate for music education, Ashley additionally serves the National Association for Music Education as a member of the Repertoire Diversity Task Force and the Virginia Music Educators Association as chair of the DEI Council. You can learn more about Ashley by going to ashleycuthbertson.com slash about dash us. And I will link to more of Ashley's resources in the show notes. If you have ever seen Ashley present, she is so skilled at presenting and she just has such a breadth of knowledge about music education and culturally responsive teaching. So I am so excited to have her on the show. Here's the interview. Welcome to episode 92 of The Music Room. I am so excited to be interviewing Ashley Cuthbertson all about culturally responsive teaching in The Music Room. Ashley, how are you? I'm great, Aileen. Thank you so much for the invitation to share and to be on your podcast. I'm excited for our conversation today. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. So Ashley, first, can you tell us about yourself and your music educator journey? Yeah, so I am Ashley Cuthbertson. I use the pronoun she and her, and I'm based here in the D.C. metro area, specifically in Northern Virginia, born and raised what we call the DMV, not the place where you get your license, but like where D.C., Maryland, and Virginia all kind of converge. <laughs> so born and raised here um, in this great area. And I am a music educator and now a consultant. So I specifically work with music teams, uh, both at their school and also at the district level to help them to center culturally responsive and equitable practices in their curriculum and instruction. And this has been uh, a great joy to be able to, to full-time support my folks all literally all across our country, coast to coast and internationally now too, which has been really exciting to, have to work with some Canadian um, music teachers. But before I became an educational consultant and was running my own company, I was a music educator in the public schools for 12 years. And so I actually started off as a music performance major, believe it or oh, not. Wow. Yeah. Uh, people are always surprised when I say that, but at, for a long time, my goal was to be the principal flutist of a major symphony orchestra, like a long time. That was my goal. And then when I was in college, you know, college student needing to make some you know, money and things, I was like, okay, well, I saw this advertisement in my college for middle school locally that was looking for people to come in and like do private lessons and group kinds of things with their students. So I got a job working just part-time at that middle school. And I loved it. I loved working with kids. I love the puzzle of figuring out what works with this student, but like it's not going to quite work with this student and what's going to make it click for them. I I loved it. It lit me up in a way that just like being 
performing and like in a practice room for like four hours a day didn't quite <laughs> light me up although I love performing and now ironically I rarely perform and I miss like getting my flute out and playing uh yeah so I I did that I had a little bit of like a crisis of identity because for many <laughs> many years like since I was probably 15 years old I was working towards this like very specific goal and all these things lined up and then I was like you know actually I'm gonna just kind of Took another turn that mm -hmm. actually is the story of my life of like I think I'm going to do one thing and then here I am doing a completely different thing so I uh, started teaching I was very thankful that people took a chance on me and I didn't have like a music education degree but people took a chance on me and so I started teaching with a company that was like um like very small private schools and Montessori schools that don't have a need for like a full-time music teacher with contract with this company and so I traveled all around Northern Virginia teaching preschool well actually it was infants ironic like I, I don't even know now I know what I would do with an infant in the toddler class but then I was just like <laughs> singing songs and like I didn't know what I was doing um, but infant all the way through eighth grade at these different uh, private schools and Montessori schools here in Northern Virginia and then I went to DC and I taught there for a time general music and choir and band so I taught band for a little bit when I was there and then I came to where I taught most of my time in the classroom here in Fairfax County. I taught K through six drill music and choir, loved it, got to teach great kids and great communities. And um, along the way, I started doing things like providing professional development for different groups, presenting at conferences when people would ask me to, mentoring teachers um, in my school district. In fact, I was a new teacher coach for music teachers. Fairfax has a really robust program for teachers who are new to the profession, but also new to Fairfax because Fairfax has to do everything the Fairfax way. So it has a really robust program. And so I was really fortunate to be trained as a coach to work with teachers, especially during those first few years. And so I got a lot of great experience working with teachers and figuring out in their classrooms, like what are the ways to strategies to help teachers to be able to overcome different challenges that they're having both in, you know, facilitating their classroom, developing curriculum, delivering the actual instruction. I really enjoyed that. The last six years, I've also been an adjunct professor um, at two universities in the Baltimore, Maryland area. One program where I taught in the summer and then the other I kind of teach when they need me to teach. And so those students are most most of them have been graduate students, so like in-service music teachers getting their master's degree, but a few undergraduate things kind of here and there. And so that kind of led me to where I am now, where I was finding all of these opportunities were coming to me, people asking for support, PD and coaching, all these different things. And so last year I was like, you know, maybe it's maybe it's time to focus down and to really put all of my energy into one place. And so I founded my educational consulting firm company. And that's what I've been doing ever since now. It's been a beautiful journey, a little scary at times, entrepreneurship, yeah. but I've been able to, you know, work, like I said, work with so many different teachers and see so many angles now of music education that I never would have seen if I just stayed in my one classroom, mm -hmm. which is really humbling to know that I'm able to help so many people and by extension, help their students. Like that's, it's really gratifying yeah. work. Yeah, for sure. And so that's kind of, that's kind of where I am now. Yeah. Such a fun and interesting journey. And I can say from watching you present that you were so good at working with teachers. I'm sure you're a fabulous teacher with kids too, but I'm really excited for you that you found a passion with working with music teachers because, you know, what you're doing professional development about people definitely need to hear. So I'm super excited to dive into culturally responsive teaching. So can you tell us what is culturally responsive teaching? Yes. And I, I love this question and people who follow me probably have heard me say many times, culturally responsive teaching has nothing to do with just diversifying your repertoire, which in the music room, unfortunately is what it kind of becomes because music teachers don't get a lot of guidance. And so we look around and we think like, 
why I see people using like composers that are from diverse backgrounds, you know, black, brown, indigenous, Asian. So I guess I got a program, you know, piece by a black, brown, indigenous or Asian composer or in the elementary classroom, I guess I got to find some pieces from different cultures, but actually culturally responsive teaching calls on us as educators to seek to really help students to, well, not help them, but using their frames of reference, which is their culture. So their background experiences, prior knowledge, interests, to use that to help them to have strong academic outcomes. So gaining those learn to learn skills, helping them to affirm who they are. So their own cultural identity, not needing to like fill another space. And then a really important differentiator between culturally responsive teaching and like a multicultural approach or a diversity is that we're helping kids not just to gain knowledge, but to use the knowledge in their actual lives. So culturally responsive teaching calls on us to center those frames of reference, give them great knowledge, but help them to actually use it so that they can understand when they go out in the world, how can they tackle issues and things that they experience? And so there's always a like a social political piece of how we're going to use this learning versus just we were diverse, <laughs> you know, in our classrooms. And, and right. music, I define culturally responsive music education as using all of those prior uh, knowledge, interests, experiences that the frames of reference to engage kids in actual relevant musical tasks that you would see out in the real world. So not doing things that sometimes would be termed as like classroom music activities, but actual like, what is a real reason in the world why somebody would do this standard? Can we do that in our classroom? And can we look out in the world and see examples of that? And can we interact in that way? So that when they're constructing the understandings, they have real world context of what they learned, which will help them to better understand who they are, who other people are in their experiences, and also how to use that knowledge out in the world around them. That's a great explanation. Thank you so much. So getting kind of diving into some specifics here, can you tell us about a lesson that you've taught that would be a good example of culturally responsive teaching? Yeah, I love this question. There are so many when I knew you're going to ask, I was like, man, what lesson am I going to share? I think I'll share one that I have a resource for. So if people wanted to like dive into more on my website, I have this one listed. And so one of my favorite lessons that I taught when I was in the classroom, I taught most, I taught K through 12, but I mostly taught elementary school, was a lesson that I did to celebrate uh, Dr. King Day, but also one of my favorite musicians, Stevie Wonder. And hey. so a lot of people, yeah, I love Stevie. A lot of people are probably familiar with the like other version of the Happy Birthday song, but not necessarily everyone knows that Stevie Wonder wrote that song, in fact, to advocate for Dr. King Day to be MLK Day. So there was like a whole movement to, to have this holiday to celebrate Dr. King's life and his work. And as part of that advocacy, Stevie, Stevie was very much a part of that movement and part of that he wrote this song and so I think it's important for people one to know the song because it's a great song <laughs> but also to understand what came about as a reason why he created that song so the the unit really that I used to teach this and it looked different for my little guys versus my older students but really I wanted students to to first of all know who Stevie Wonder is and to engage in different styles of music but this is a, such a great piece for form because the refrain the birthday to you. That's the whole refrain. And it happens, you know, throughout the song. So it's so easy and accessible for students to learn that verse and refrain form. Additionally, you know, the introduction and a code, and I think there's a bridge. So it's a great way to, to really investigate form. And it's super easy. You could add movement to it. But I often did with my students was I gave them the choice to use. I had these like little shapes, like math manipulative shapes mm -hmm. that I would have um, kids could use as an alternative when we did form and movement, because not everybody wants to do movement. 
And for the point of this, the movement wasn't the point, the understanding the form was kind of the point. And so having them create some kind of representation either with their body physically or using the different manipulatives to demonstrate the form once they know where that refrain is gonna happen because it's so catchy and quick, like they're gonna catch it. And then it's about, can you hear where the other parts of the song are happening? My younger kids, we kind of left it at that. We also talked about Dr. King. We talked about why it is that people create music to advocate for change and how music can be a vehicle for change and things like that. So we get into what Dr. King stood for. We also get into like how when Dr. King was alive, people were not as like rah, rah, Dr. King as they are now, which I think is important for kids to understand like the over time, how that perception has changed. Not that his writings or the things that he said change, but how our world has kind of changed in regards to like accepting that that's probably a better way to live than right. how things were, are, were, are. And so my younger students, we kind of left it at that. But my older students, the form was just the first step. I then took the idea of, you know, CD wrote this song for advocating for change. How can we also additionally use the song form to do some songwriting to add some verses to advocate, to additionally advocate for change. So I didn't have them create their whole, a whole brand new song. We really looked at the ideas and each of the verses. We, you know, we learned about Dr. King and his readings, uh, his speeches and things like that. And then they worked in groups to add additional verses to the song for us to perform that continue that idea of how music can be used to advocate for change. And so on my website, if folks want to find like the full unit plan of that, it's called Happy Birthday, Dr. King. I think it's January 2022 is when I first um, released that. So all my blog folks can find the, awesome. the full thing, all the lessons. Yeah. All the, I think I put even like some of the um, visuals in there as well. So if anyone wanted to like pull it out and use it with their kids, great for January, right? When people are celebrating yeah. MLK Day anyway. But I find that a lot of the like music celebrations are very surface level. And it's like, how can mm -hmm. we get deeper to really understand not just, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a great man, but really understand what he stood for, really understand the intersection of how music can help to advocate for things, just like Dr. King did as well. So helping kids to engage in a relevant musical task and to really develop an understanding that's going to help them understand the world around them a bit better than if they just learned Dr. King was a great man. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's great. And I will definitely link to the blog post in the show notes. Yeah. So for people listening, if you go to my website and you click on podcast, then you'll, you can find this episode and I will make sure to link to it. And what I really love about that lesson is there's, you know, music, you know, we're, we're responding to music, we're learning about the history, but then there's also agency and choice as far as like, how do you want to show the form? So, so many great things going on. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. I love one of my favorites that I taught in the classroom. Yeah. So what are three things we can do as music educators to foster a culturally responsive learning environment? Yeah, I, I love this question. And so I think the first thing for music educators to do as they consider how can we foster a more culturally responsive environment is to kind of divorce the thought that it's all about the repertoire. Because I think that's kind of where a lot of people go immediately. And I know why, it's because it's kind of like the easier thing to pick up, but really the hard thing, and really what I always, when I work with music teams, I have a whole program that I take folks through. The first thing we have to do is really make sure that we ourselves have done some self work so that we have done some, some mind shift shifts and some reframes around what even is diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, access, all these words that get kind of thrown around, but aren't necessarily defined. And then even as, as music educators, 
what do those words mean for us in our classroom? So the first thing is to make sure that you are yourself doing that kind of hard work that I call it the critical self-reflection, where you ask questions like, who even am I? Like, what has contributed to me being this way? How do I see the world? How does that influence the decisions and the choices that I make? Really digging into first your own culture. That's really what it is, right? When I'm asking you to consider who you are. That's your own cultural frame of reference because all culture is, is what are your prior experience, knowledge, and interests? That's culture. And so that's the hard work first of really understanding who you are because before you can start to begin to become culturally competent about anybody else, you gotta be culturally competent about yourself. And then us as music educators, because music is culture, there's another additional layer of really making sure that we understand that when we're teaching musical ideas, engaging in literally people's lives, that we do it in a way that's not like sensitive, but we do it in a way that is full truth and full full out showing of what, what things are. So that's like the first thing I would say is make sure that you really understand yourself, some critical self-reflection. The next thing I would say is you have to continue to look at the learning environment that you're cultivating. One thing I love about culturally responsive teaching, and I'll admit I was really resistant to myself because I was a classically trained flutist. I was very much taught in the way that many of us were a very traditional, you know, band program, very traditional mm -hmm. private studio kind of way. Like the teacher decides what method book we're going to go with and we're going to decide here's the pieces that you should do in your recital. You should have a, a Baroque piece and a class, like the teacher mm -hmm. kind of making all the decisions. And culturally responsive teaching is so much about the culture of the children that it has to be a co-partnership. So the next thing that music educators have to do is really understand how do I, first of all, know who my learners are, not the demographic data that I can go to your school's website and read for myself. And I, I still am shocked when I ask teachers, like, tell me about your kids. And they read off to me like, well, we have this percentage of Black students and this person. Okay, I could learn that myself. I could go to your <laughs> website and I could figure that out. Who are they? Like, what kinds of experiences do they have? What are they good at? What do they like to do? What have they already demonstrated knowledge about? Like, that's how you know your kids. Mm -hmm. And then how can we use that information to kind of design together a co-partnership, a learning environment that's going to be able to foster a sense of belonging? Not so much that kids feel like they're welcome, because of course we want kids to feel welcome, but there's a difference between feeling welcome in a place and feeling like you belong, like you own this. And I, I use the example of when I was in high school, my band director, I think, did a really good job of this, partially because I think he had to. We were a brand new uh, school, so a brand new band program. He had come from another state, so he was literally learning the ropes of Virginia as he was teaching us. And so he kind of, I think, because he was kind of having to figure out so many things, he defaulted to us as the students so much that I literally remember feeling like this program is mine. Like, I have made so many decisions about how things go. I even chose like the drum major uniform because I was the first one. So like I decided this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. So when we think about how do we work with our kids together, they have to feel like it's theirs, that they belong. Because feeling welcome is nice, but we don't want to just invite the kids in. We want to invite them to really partake in the process. And that takes, again, being really aware of yourself and what might be things about the way that you approach people and relationships that might get in the way of that a little bit. And also making sure that you are thinking about the kids and how they want to interact. Because sometimes the way that like we want to see them interact and what we think is the right way might not be the right way for them. Sometimes we want to see kids like physically, verbally showing that they're engaged and doing the things. But there's other ways for kids to communicate that they are with us, that they're learning, that might not uh, look obvious, but are still very much as valid. And sometimes I think in, in music, especially, I think we forget like there's, there's a variety of ways to communicate like what's going on. And then I would say, then we get to like repertoire, right? Looking at repertoire, 
How do we make sure that we're choosing repertoire, not just for diversity's sake, but that we're normalizing that here in this space, we learn music from all kinds of people with all kinds of experiences and backgrounds and all kinds of stories to tell us versus, you know, we only learn, I don't know, Spanish language music in September and October, right? Which is kind of right. like other, like, can we just do it all the time and make it normal? Like, I would love for my, I, my goal was always for my students not to be like, oh, ooh, this new piece, but be like, oh yeah, we learn music from all over the place all the time. Like for them to feel normal, like this is just what we do versus a certain time of year or a very special kind of occasion. Not to say we can't celebrate occasions, but right. if that's the only time, then we start to get into issues and things. And then once we kind of have figured those things out, I would say the last thing is to really look at your curriculum, both the, the things that you're teaching, but also like what maybe you're not teaching. Are there opportunities to bring in more things that your students would be able to relate to like in their actual real life? Are there more opportunities to move away from maybe what from your vantage point or what maybe you experienced to bring in things that they would do? Same standards, right? Same concepts, same skills, but can you center it on their real context of music making, the real context of their of their lives. Those are great, uh, great things to consider. Thank you so much. Yeah, really specific ideas. I love it. Which resources would you recommend for those teachers who want to go further on their journey with culturally responsive teaching? Well, of course, I'm going to say myself. I think I'm probably the best resource. (laughs) There really aren't a lot of uh, us out here who are really focusing on developing content around culturally responsive music instruction. There's so much culturally responsive teaching strategies and content mm-hmm. out there. But when you look around, like, where's the research on culturally responsive teaching? My friend uh, Liz Palmer and her research group is doing some great work around there, but there's not a whole lot. So yeah. I would say, first, come to me. I'm probably the best resource you're going to find. I know you're going to link to it, but my website has both my blog, which I write a lot, actually. And right now, I'm actually in the process of writing a book. So these ideas are going to be more fully fleshed out, hoping to have that out pretty soon. We'll see. I'm a little bit behind on my writing schedule, <laughs> um, but my blog posts are there. They're freely available. And then I have my own show, the Music Edquity Chat Show, where I'm specifically seeking to have harder conversations in music education that I see out in the world that I feel like we need to be having to really make some of these changes. And so this first season has basically been like my awesome friends. And I'm like, hey, you want to come and talk? But I'm really looking for there's so many great things that are happening. And the more I'm, I go out and work with teachers, the more I'm like, okay, people are doing really great things, but they're not always getting highlighted. They're not always getting amplified. So I'm excited as like the episodes go on to be able to highlight like great music teaching that's happening all over the place. So of course I'm going to plug myself because <laughs> I think yeah. there's some great, great things that I've got, but I wrote a list of some other folks that I follow. I really love the work of Dr. Goldie Muhammad and her work around uh, culturally and historically responsive literacy, which really translates well to any discipline, especially I think music. I think there's so many parallels in how she describes a culturally responsive approach that looks back to historically what has already, what was working, what did we stop doing, and maybe we need to go back and do those things. And so if you're not already familiar with Dr. Muhammad's work, her first book, Cultivating Genius, is a really, really great resource that I highly recommend. And then she just put out a new book, Unearthing Joy, so I haven't finished reading yet, but so far I'm loving it um, as well. So I would highly recommend uh, Dr. Muhammad, uh, Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings, like literally the old G of culturally relevant pedagogy. She coined that term. I love her book, The Dream Keepers, where she talks about how she came to the theory of culturally relevant pedagogy and the research she did around teachers of African-American students who are getting to write. And she looked at what are they doing? What are the pieces? 
and that came to be her her theory. And she she also is a prolific writer, not just that one book, many, many books. But if we're just starting, I would highly recommend Dreamkeepers, that first one to start with. And then uh, Zaretta Hammond, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, such a great resource. I love that Zaretta makes it so clear that culture Responsive Teaching is not about the literal like types of content. It's about building cognitive capacity and brain capacity so that our students can use this knowledge that we're giving to them. I think she does a really brilliant job of describing that and really breaking it down really well for people. So a few resources to to get folks started who are just starting their their journey. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And I will definitely link to all of those resources in the show notes as well as your blog. I definitely want people to check that out. So So much great stuff. Anything else that we um, haven't touched upon that you would like to discuss? Yeah, I think maybe the only other thing I would say is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about culturally responsive teaching is because I'm really passionate about just music education in general. Music for me has been, I mean, it's like the central force in my life. And I don't take it for granted that I've had the great privilege of having great K-12 music programs. I've had great teachers. I've had great experiences. And I think about the many, many, I was just looking at um, a data study and I'm forgetting the name of the study, but it was, it's like millions of kids don't have access to great music education. Like they don't have it period. And then further than that, I, and I don't think there's a research study, but I would hypothesize that of the kids who do have access, and I'm putting air quotes up, is that for many kids, when they look at music programs, because they don't see themselves reflected, either like literally pieces of their own identity, or they look and they see like, oh, the things that they're doing over there, like don't really gel with me, that keeps access from our kids as well. And so I really think that a culturally responsive approach where we're being really specific about how can I look at my students, their frames of reference, and how can I make that be the central part of what I do? I think that's like the best way to make equitable access for everybody. And of course, you know, preaching to the choir, we know how important music education is for like cognitive development, even physical development, wellness, test scores, like all these, the research proves that music education is so powerful for us. And there's so many, I mean, there's whole, there's places in our country where like music is not even like a thing that kids have to do. And so that's, it's it's like so crazy to me that there are kids who will never have these powerful experiences. Right. And I think that the more we consider that equitable access piece, and I think that culture responsive teaching really is a great lever to get us there. I think that that's how we're going to make sure that more of our students in our schools have access to this powerful music education, right? Music for everyone. Well, not really actually right now, but we can make music for everyone when we're really intentional about thinking about equitable access and how we how we get there. Awesome. Thank you yeah. so much for all of your thoughts. I, I know that people will really have a lot to think about and a lot to re- reflect upon. Yeah, all right, you sure. want to talk about um, what we're consuming? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I, I know I've talked about Ted Lasso before on my podcast because I haven't ever seen Ted Lasso. Oh my gosh. It's so good. Ashley. <laughs> so good. Um, do you have Apple TV? I don't have, it's an Apple TV show. Yeah. Oh, I don't have Apple TV. Okay. Do you have like a Apple phone? I don't. I'm an Android. Oh, okay. I was going to say, if you have an Apple phone, I think you can get Apple TV for free for like a few months. But anyway, I'm not even like, I'm not a sports fan really at all. Mm-hmm. And it's about an American who a uh, football coach who goes over to coach European football, which, oh, you know, okay. two different sports. Yeah. <laughs> so, Soccer and football. Right? Yeah. <laughs> He's like the laughing stock of, yeah, of the town or whatever. It's um 
Oh gosh, his name just completely Jason Sudeikis. Am I okay? I'm going to look that up really quick because it's going to bother me. Let me see if I'm right here. Jason Sudeikis. Yes, Jason Sudeikis. Okay, he's hilarious. He's just so so funny, and the character development is just fantastic. So I had already watched the first two seasons and was waiting impatiently for the third season. So that just came out, and it's been awesome so far. I just you know the show just makes me laugh, and there are times I'm also crying. So you know it's got a good mix of comedy and drama, mostly yeah. comedy. I- I've heard of it before and I've, I've heard people like recommend it, but I'm like, I don't even know like where this show is available. So that's probably why I don't, yeah. but it's on Apple. So maybe I'll have to figure out a way to get access to it somehow. Yeah. What about you? Yes. And so I am, I was debating like, what am I really listening to and watching? So I am a like true crime lover, but also like a reality, yeah. like trashy reality show. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> And so I just finished the most on Netflix, the most recent season of Married at First Sight, which is a show about basically a, a social experiment of these yeah. like relationship and therapy experts find like they go to a city. This last one was in Atlanta. So they go to a city and they do like a call for different kinds of people who are looking to get married to a mm-hmm. stranger at first sight. And it's legally, these are legal binding marriages. Right. <laughs> And they like look at, you know, all the things about the people's background and they try to match up, you know, people as best as they can. And so it's like so fascinating to me that sometimes they like it's perfect, right? Like the first right. sight, the person, the people are like really like, yeah, this is my person. And mm-hmm. then what I would think would probably happen to me is I'd probably be the, the person like I don't jump with that. Right. <laughs> so it's always like a mix of this last season. They had five. Uh, couples and at the end three of them stayed together so I feel that's, like that's a pretty, pretty, good, pretty good yeah percentage. yeah I've watched previous seasons of Married at First Sight and did really enjoy it it is quite a unique social experiment but I haven't watched the latest one so yeah it, it was good it I think I watched it all about a week so it, I highly recommend it was okay good. okay so I have to ask you since you like trashy uh, reality tv shows <laughs> are you watching The Bachelor I am not. And actually, okay. I haven't watched The Bachelor in several years, actually. I like fell off of my rotation of shows. Yeah, I, I was like a pretty hardcore Bachelor fan when it yeah. first <laughs> I, I watched it for several years and then it kind of fell off. And then I started watching again and then it kind of fell off. And I am watching it right now, but I'm a little bit behind. Um, <laughs> but that's one where it's like, why am I watching this? This is horrible. But it yeah. also like... <laughs> You so your brain sometimes needs a break. Yeah, it's <laughs> so my brain break. It's fascinating, is what I say. Like it's such a wreck, you can't like stop. Yeah, it. yeah. So All right. Well, Ashley, this has been such a enlightening interview. Thank you so much. I know that the listeners will really appreciate hearing all of your expertise and wisdom. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great to chat about this with you. And I hope I hope everybody gets great usefulness out of the conversation that we had. And feel free to head to my website and check out those resources that I have there. Yep. And I will definitely link to those. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Welcome. Bye. Bye.